Turnaround, let's talk about turnaround. Um, turnarounds are tough, right? Do you know this? Turnaround is hard to accomplish. Uh, it's something you don't want to do, but you need to do. Right? A turnaround is difficult, right? If you want to start being able to do burpees, the only way to get better at doing burpees is to do some burpees. And those of you who've ever done a burpee know that they are mostly terrible, right? Can you wave at me if you just find burpees? Like, I've done a lot of burpees, and they're, who loves burpees? Are there any crazy people in this? Becky loves burpees, Mar uh, Marion loves burpees, and you have the biceps to show it, and it's crazy. Nikki loves burpees. Burpees are tough, tough sledding, right? You know they're good for you, but they're hard to do. It's hard to turn that one around from never having done a burpee to being able to do them as much as you like. Uh, burpees are like difficult, like seafood is difficult. It's hard to like seafood, you know? <laughs> Can I get a witness? Difficult for me because I married into an Italian family and they would consider it sacrilege to not love seafood. But I'll never forget the very first Christmas Eve with my wife's dear Italian family. And you should have seen the never-ending seafood that just kept coming tray upon tray of slimy creatures from the ocean. <laughs> See, my problem with seafood is that it tastes like the sea. And I love the sea, I just don't like eating it. You know, they're like, how do you, how does it taste? I always want to say, like fish which is why it's gross, right? <laughs> but I realized I needed to repent and learn to like seafood because like my mother-in-law is back. Good to have you in the house again, mother-in-law. And I know she wants to throw things at me even now because to not like seafood is a cardinal sin when the Italians are part of the mix. I needed to repent of my hatred of seafood and it was difficult. Are you like me? Is um, combative your um, natural response? We were driving, no, we were driving downtown uh, yesterday and my wife was all over me. She's like, why, why are you so aggressive? And I said, I'm not aggressive, I'm assertive. Aye, <laughs> there's the rub, right? <laughs> I grew up in the Middle East, right? I, I grew up in Israel. Um, it's a combative place, right? Israelis don't obey the rules. They just do whatever they want. If they need to get ahead, they push ahead. That's the culture I was raised in. I'm fairly combative. If those of you who know the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 8. You're like, Mm, that explains a lot, exactly. My, uh, my, my instinct, my gut response is to run 10 yards and hit somebody. I'm a linebacker at heart. It's easier for me to be combative than it is for me to be kind. And so much of my life has been a process of learning to repent of my gut reaction of combativeness and to abide in persistent kindness. But affecting that kind of turnaround is not easy, it's difficult. When you come out of a season of brokenness and you're fighting into a season of wholeness, that kind of turnaround is difficult, right? Sometimes a season of brokenness can last for years. Anybody witness to this? Like if you've really struggled with addiction or you've, God forbid, maybe some of you have gone through bankruptcy or near bankruptcy, <laughs> you know, or it's just like it's the end. You're like, it's over. I don't know how we're going to survive. And then you begin to claw yourself out of that desperate situation moving from brokenness to wholeness, but it's, it's difficult. You might be on a health journey that has brokenness as part of it. You feel really helpless, like, I, I can't do anything about this. How can I move from this brokenness to wholeness? I would like to repent of my brokenness and abide in wholeness. Maybe you have um, destructive relational patterns that you just keep falling back into again and again and again. You know you don't want to do these things, but you keep doing them, like the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I don't want to do, I do, and things I do, I don't want to do. You feel a little desperate that um, you're not able to move from brokenness to wholeness. Remember that uh, your friend Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, was in the same boat much of the time. 
the thing about repentance is that I need to do it. Like, <laughs> I didn't write this, but like, if I think about my life, I mean, I'm doing it in the, on the fly here in the moment. I, I, I can't think of an area in my life where I don't need to repent, where I don't need a turnaround. Like Judah in Genesis 44. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we have found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we shall be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He was found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. He asks for a private audience. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to my ser- your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him. You will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol, to the underworld. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please... Let your servant remain here instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. 
For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. It's really hard to preach Genesis 44 and not immediately go into Genesis 45. It takes a lot of self-control to let the story hang there. You're going to have to come back next week, man. Genesis 45 is just too good to be true. Here's a keystone habit number eight out of Genesis 44. You'll see the definition for a keystone habit on screen. Keystone habit number eight, repent, it does a body good. That one will be easy to remember. Repent, it does a body good. Let's define the terms. Repent, repent. To turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the amendment of one's life. To feel regret or contrition. To change one's mind or one's beard. Repent, to change, to turn. To stop living one way and begin living another. I'll never forget what I was taught in my first year systematic theology course in my master's degree. My systematics prof stood up there and said, repentance means first and foremost admitting that you can't do it. It was very helpful, right? Because there has crept into established Christianity the notion that repentance is self-actuated. Like you somehow have it in you to decide to stop acting a certain way and begin acting in another way. Anyone who's ever struggled with addiction knows that it's not quite that cut and dry. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So it starts with an admission that you can't do it. Then a realization that Jesus has paid the price for your sin. Then a response to him in love and devotion, which then leads to the beginnings of right action as you learn to walk in repentance, to walk in newness of life from a heart that is overflowing with love for him who first loved you. That's how repentance really works. Repent. Turning things around, like getting good at burpees after having never done one. Or learning to love calamari, even though that's really fancy Italian for octopus. Squid, thank you. See, I don't even care to know what it's called. Damn the calamari, for real. (laughs) Why does nobody like to repent? Why? Because it involves two difficult things. One, admitting you were wrong. Two, um, working to change. Like, what's harder than that? Almost nothing, right? In the human experience, admitting you were wrong, and then working to change. This is hard because life is hard. Right? It's hard because life is hard. So, let me give you 13 reasons to embrace turnaround. Um, 13 reasons to embrace turnaround. First, um, the first reason to embrace turnaround is because a little bit of good news often precedes more bad news. I get this from verse 1. Give them as much food as they can carry. This is mission accomplished. Hooray! We came down for more food. Not only did we get more food, we got as much food as we could carry. Good news. Great. I want to just say, every time you experience a moment of relief, enjoy it. Okay? Celebrate it. Milk it for all it's worth. It's great. Why? Because after good news, typically more badness is on its way. This is why you need to stay nimble and ready to sprint. Or in the words of 1 Peter 1.13, keep the loins of your mind girded up. This is fancy New Testament 
Greek translated to English for live a speedo kind of life. I may not look as good as you in your board shorts, but I am faster. Right? That's a speedo kind of life. A nimble life. A life that can change direction quickly. You think it's going to be good forever. It's not. So you got to keep your speedo on so you stay fast. Could I get an amen in this house? You're like, you're really pushing us this morning. You always need to stay in your speedo. You always need to stay nimble. Why? Because life is always going to be hard. You're always going to need more turnaround. As God's people, we don't rest on our laurels. When do we rest? One day a week. Right? We rest on the Sabbath. The rest of the time, we go hard because life is hard. Second reason to embrace turnaround. uh, Because a test is coming and you have no idea. Do you love this from the text, verse 2? He tells his servant to put his silver cup in the men's bags. He's setting them up here. He's setting them up and they have no idea. If you want a good reason to walk in relentless repentance, you find it here in Genesis 44, verse 2. You see, if you are practicing ever-increasing repentance, you'll be ready for the sneak attack when it comes. Like my back in the Syrian briefcase. Suitcase. So, we helped some Syrian refugees settle into Guelph a few months ago. We got a call. Marion was there. Who else was there? Marion was there, and Rob Gamble was there. Remember those suitcases you had to carry into their basement apartment? Well, there was one suitcase that was, like, extremely heavy. And he said, like, this is a very heavy suitcase. And, of course, Pastor Todd, the linebacker, was like, whatever, I can deal with the heavy suitcase. <laughs> so I lifted the suitcase from the back of my car, and as I went to put it down, I felt my back almost go out, like it has gone out throughout the course of my life since I renovated that house in Toronto back in the day, and threw the big concrete piece like this, and as I extended, I felt my back just go boop, and ever since then, I've been prone to back problems if I lift something the wrong way, but I have been doing burpees. And plank, which I hate. And so you know what happened? I was ready for the sneak attack. As I lifted that darn Syrian suitcase out of that minivan, and it tried to throw my back out, my Holy Ghost back said, oh, no, you didn't. Because I have been practicing relentless repentance. I have been doing burpees and plank, getting ready for the sneak attack. Keep your speedo on and live in repentance so that you'll be ready when the attack that you don't see coming shows up. If you don't think you need to be ready at all times, uh, let me correct you. Okay? The third reason to embrace turnaround is because trouble is chasing you. They'd gone only a short distance from the city, verse 4. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them... So this steward is racing to catch these men. Trouble is chasing you. If you feel like unexpected trouble is always chasing you down from behind, I'm here to tell you this morning as a Bible preaching pastor who loves you, get used to it, because that's life. It's kind of freeing, right? Like It's kind of depressing, because you're like, great. You're like halfway old, and you're saying life is always going to be like this. Now I'm really depressed. Or you're empowered by not living under false expectations. 
Trouble's always going to be chasing you down from behind, so you got to stay nimble. You need to become somebody who practices relentless repentance. Practicing turnaround as a way of life. Interesting, of course, if you lived in perpetual turnaround, once in a while when you turned around, you'd see the trouble coming. Somebody shout at me. I'm like, silly rabbit. If I just repented more, I'd see the trouble coming. Go, oh, that looks like trouble. Swerve right. Oh, that looks like trouble. Swerve left. Live in perpetual turnaround. You're like, that sounds tiring. Yeah, I know. It, uh, it kind of is. Not that I've already obtained, or I'm already perfect, <laughs> but I press on to make it my own, okay? to make salvation my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is racing imagery that Paul is using here in Philippians chapter 3. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, like Pastor Todd just said, you're wrong. God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Isn't that great? Work at it. Strain at it. Let me remind you, you get to enter your rest on the Sabbath, okay, from sundown Friday night, to sundown Saturday night, you get one day a week to rest, and then you will enter your rest for real on the other side of eternity. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your rest. On this side of that moment, we grind. But Todd, I prefer peace and relaxation. I'm an Enneagram 9. I like to chill. I'm an Enneagram 4. I like to paint. Okay, I want to I relax. Well, it doesn't really matter how you feel. What matters is what's real. Okay, the fourth reason to embrace turnaround is because you might think you're innocent. What happens in verses 7 through 9? The steward catches them, says, You've stolen my master's cup that he drinks from and which he uses to practice divination. Like, what are you talking about? We brought all the money back to you. Why would we bring the money back to you and then steal something? They protest their innocence. Technically speaking, are they innocent in the matter of the cup? Well, I guess, I mean, depends. Jules is like, no. Technically, yes, they didn't take it themselves. Right? Technically, they didn't take the cup. Legally, yes. Legally, they're guilty. But objectively, are they innocent? No. We'll see why when we come to verse 16 in just a minute. Okay, but they think they're in. We didn't take the cup. Here's the general principle. As a general rule, you are not the best judge of your character. How scary is that? Um, okay, let me help you from Matthew 7. You will know them by their fruits. Let me help you from Matthew 3. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Okay, the pastor Toddism. You want to um, experience turnaround? Be more fruity. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Be more fruity. Okay, I don't care how accomplished you think you are. You need to grow more. Because, here's points number five and six, 
bad things still happen because nobody's slate is clean. Very refreshing. Very liberating. Bad things still happen because nobody's slate is clean. Worst case scenario hits us in verses 12 through 13. The steward searches, starts with the oldest sack, goes to the youngest, and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. How do we know this is disastrous? Because the brothers tear their clothes. This is the symbol of deepest mourning. This is, this is their shattered. They tear their clothes, reload their donkeys, and begin traveling back like prisoners to the city. Worst case scenario. Let's do a little bit of theology here real quick. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because there are no good people. He's past first year theology right there. So it all comes. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because there are no good people. Verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Says Judah, who in Genesis 37, 26 through 27 said, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. It's a pretty awful thing that records are being kept. Just saying. I know! We'll sell him as a slave. Let's not just kill him. Let's like a little money off this dreaming fool. I know, says you, we'll sell him to the Ishmaelites. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Luke 8, 17. Like I hinted at a moment ago with point four, nobody's innocent. Let us all depart from our legalism in one fell swoop. Since nobody's innocent. I could preach a whole series on that. Hopefully, like Joseph's brothers in verse 16, the realization of your sinfulness leads you to yet another reason to embrace turnaround. The seventh reason to embrace turnaround is because your sinfulness ought to leave you speechless and helpless. Like Judah and the brothers in verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clean ourselves? Anybody ever felt that way in this house? Aren't you glad you're not the only one? Helpless. Speechless. Newsflash. Nobody's going anywhere with faith until they realize their moral bankruptcy. I would suggest you stop arguing with anybody who has not already come to the end of themselves. Because until I can do it perishes, new life cannot begin. And last time I checked, none of you have the ability to kill I can do it in the friend, family, neighbor, coworker, or peer whose soul you're worried about. You can pray them into it, I believe that. But you can't force them there. Until I can do it, perishes, new life can't begin. You can't get help until you realize you need it. Until you realize that, point number eight, you need an advocate who, point number nine, will go one-on-one for you. Now it's poetry. Now Pastor Todd gets excited. 
Verse 18. Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant. Judah asks Joseph if they can go one-on-one. Judah, father of the Jewish line of kings, a line which culminates in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, steps up to go one-on-one on behalf of those he loves. I mean, if that doesn't exactly mirror what happens in the Gospel, I don't know what else does. Where God the Son made flesh steps up and goes one-on-one with the power of sin and death on your behalf. The death that you should have died because of your relentless sinfulness, He dies. The penalty you should have paid for your ongoing rebellion against our holy God, He pays. He suffers. It's so beautiful. I say it every week, and I just can't believe it. He suffers and dies in our place for our sin. And the God-man really dies. And that first Easter Sunday morning, the God-man really rises again, defeating in his body the power of Satan's sin, death, and hell forever. He does what you could never do. Jesus steps up, like Judah, the father of the line of kings. I mean, how somebody give a shout out for the Bible. How awesome is the Bible? Thank God we preach the Bible in this house. You know what you really need, point number 10, if you're going to affect a turnaround, is someone who knows the true order of things. Someone like Judah, verse 18, who says to Joseph, you're like Pharaoh himself. You know what that really means? You're like a god. That's what he's really saying. What can we say to you? How can we respond? How can we clear ourselves? You're like a god to me. Okay, Judah knows his place. Like Jesus knew his place in Luke twenty-two forty-two, as he knelt in the garden, bleeding, tear, bleeding drop, drops of blood. He was so in distress, about to go to his crucifixion. Begging his father to let the cup pass from him. But what does he say? You remember his immortal words if you've been around church for any time at all. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, O Lord. Even God the Son made flesh knows his proper place. You need someone who knows the true order of things. Point 11, you need a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did you feel the sorrow in Judah's plea in verse 20? Please don't keep the youngest If he stays, my dad will die. My father's soul is bound up with his soul. My father loves him. He is the last remaining son of my father's beloved wife. Please, sir, not that one. Sorrow, verse 20, is almost too much to take. And his father loves him. Like Jesus, the man spoken of in Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the kind of man you need. That's the kind of savior you need. You need someone, point number 12, who will stand in your place like Judah does in verse 32. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. That's not a picture of penal substitutionary atonement. I don't know what is. You need someone who will stand in your place like Jesus, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Worship team, you can join me because I'm literally almost done. Unlike Judah in verse 34, point number 13, if you're going to effect a turnaround, unlike Judah, you need someone who casts out fear and kills evil. See how afraid Judah is in verse 34. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Okay, so that's where Judah breaks down. You don't need Judah anymore. You need someone who casts out fear and who kills evil like our friend and advocate who is seated on the throne and says, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be their God. They will be my daughter or son. But as for the cowardly, faithless, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You want to deal with the bad news that follows good news? You want to deal with the test that is coming that you just can't see? You want to deal with the trouble that is chasing you? You want to deal with the fact that you are a very bad judge of your own character? You want to deal with the reality that bad things keep happening because nobody's slate is clean? Do you want to deal with the fact that your badness leaves you feeling speechless and helpless? Do you want to deal with the fact that you need an advocate who will go one-on-one for you, who knows the true order of things, is acquainted with grief, and will stand in your place while crushing fear and killing evil? If you want to deal with all those things, stick with Jesus, and you will get your turnaround. 